As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash mpn to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash mpn. Terms and conditions apply. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Danielle Wiley hosts a great podcast called The Art of Sway. Danielle, tell us what you talk about on the show. The Art of Sway brings listeners inside the world of marketing as seen through the lens of influence. So each week I chat with an expert guest for a lively discussion about connecting ideas with audiences in an attempt to uncover all the ways influence impacts how and what we discover, purchase, and recommend to each other. Wow. And where can people subscribe? Go to theartofswaypodcast.com. Find the show at marketingpodcasts.net or search for The Art of Sway wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This episode of Uncorking Stories brought to you by the Michael Carlin novel Winning Streak. You can purchase Winning Streak in paperback and ebook formats wherever books are sold online. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to share with you my interview with author Kevin Knight, whose book Connections in the Raw, Musings of a Barefoot Runner, is now available for sale. And I want to start off just by telling you a little bit about why I wanted to interview Kevin so badly. I got bit by the running bug way back in high school, which is over 25 years ago for me now in terms of when I graduated. I guess when I started, my God, it's almost three decades ago. Now, now, thank you. Now I feel old. Um, but in high school, my twin brother Jimbo, or Jimmy, James, Carlin, actually encouraged me to join the cross-country team. And ever since then, running's been part of my life. Um, and I, I, I saw Kevin's book written um, – it was a write-up of Kevin's book in, in my local newspaper. And uh, just, just for complete transparency, Kevin is a guy I know. I've known him for many years. We work in the same industry. Um, so I, I, I do want to just be transparent about that. At, at points during this interview, we go into industry speak. Don't worry about it. You'll enjoy the conversation. Even if you have no idea what we're talking about, it doesn't last very long. But uh, his book is all about running barefoot, and I was intrigued by this notion. I mean, I run in, in Connecticut. Uh, it's very hilly. There's lots of rocks. The roads aren't in great condition. There's roadkill all over the place. So the notion of, of somebody who uh, shares my passion for running yet does it barefoot was absolutely intriguing to me. So I wanted to read this book, and I wanted to pick Kevin's brain about it uh, for a number of reasons. So before I get into what some of those reasons are, allow me to digress one more time. Uh, I don't know if you're as old as I am. Probably not. Who knows? I, I really have no idea. They don't give me t statistics on, on who listens to this program. But when I was a kid, uh, 
it wasn't uncommon for our primetime TV shows to do these things called very special episodes. And these very special episodes were designed to raise awareness about a difficult or controversial subject. And, and, and I mean, do you remember these? I mean, some of you have to remember these, right? I can't be the only one. Um, one notable example is uh, is the the very special episode of Different Strokes, where the creepy bicycle man uh, lures Arnold and and his friend Dudley into the back, and uh, there, there was almost um, some some sexual abuse. I mean, it, it was uh, again a very special episode of Different Strokes. The one that usually comes to mind, though, is the very special episode of Family Ties, uh, which co-starred Tom Hanks. He played uh, Uncle Ned. Uh, Uncle Ned is uh, is an alcoholic, and Alex catches him drinking vanilla extract. And to this day, um, my wife and I make uh, uh, you know vanilla extract references every now and then, and that's uh, of course goes right back to that very special episode of Family Ties. Well, I bring up this notion of a very special episode because I consider this to be a very special episode of Uncorking a Story, not because it's controversial. Uh, but because my guest Kevin and I cover some really, really deep and emotional territory in the course of this interview. So back to his book. I mean, at, at, at its core, this book is not just about a guy who runs barefoot. It's not about running barefoot. At its core, this book is about the insights that Kevin has gleaned while running barefoot. And this, of course, not only helped him alleviate pain in his back and his hips, which is why he started running barefoot in the first place after reading a book about running barefoot, um, but it also served as a way for Kevin to, to really connect and, and get even more in touch with his spiritual side, as well as the other people in his neighborhood. I mean, the, the conversation starter about the barefoot runner or seeing somebody run barefoot, I mean, it has naturally led to to people asking him questions. And instead of being annoyed by it, which I would have been, uh, Kevin embraced it, embraced it as a way of, of forming uh, bonds with his, with his neighbors. Um, so this book's uh, pages, they're full of wisdom. Um, I was very eager to sit down and chat with Kevin about it. Um, I will remind you, it does get deep at times. In the, in the last 10 minutes, I actually break down a little bit while, um, while telling a story about my mother-in-law who, who actually passed away four years ago to the day we recorded the interview. Um, but part of Kevin's book actually does talk about, it addresses death um, as well as life. And uh, while, while we got to that part of the conversation, I felt compelled to share uh, a little story about my mother-in-law's passing. And, and it did break me up. Um, so, so listen, uh, <laughs> during the last 10 minutes, you'll, uh, you'll, you'll definitely hear that if you stick with the interview. Um, so how about this? Without any more interruptions, this is my interview with the wonderfully talented, highly insightful, and extremely engaging Kevin A. Knight. So my, with my kids, we were sitting there, we got this new dog, and they said, what are you going to name it, Dad? And I, I wasn't pleased because my kids bought the dog for us. We don't need a dog. Now, listen, I know you might be thinking here that um, this is supposed to be a podcast about running barefoot, and, and why is there a conversation about a dog? Well, when Kevin came over to my house, my dogs greeted him in their customary, friendly fashion, and they wouldn't leave the poor man alone. Now, uh, he started talking about his dog, whose name you're going to hear in a minute. I happen to think it's like the greatest name for a dog ever. But uh, my mother once told me that you can tell a lot about a person's character by how they treat animals, and Kevin was more than patient 
with uh, Murphy and Riley, who uh, came in and greeted him and just to make sure that he was okay. Uh, okay, back to Kevin. They bought this dog. So you didn't know that the dog was coming into your life no. until... No, and we didn't want another dog. We had just... My oldest, my youngest is now a senior in college. We were kind of like, this is great, you know? And I don't know what made them get this dog for us. And so, fine. And so they're like, what do you want to name? I said, I don't know. I said, let's name it Oreo 2. They're like, Dad, you can't name a dog Oreo 2. I said, why not? That should be its name, Oreo 2. And they go, you can't do that. I said, fine. Then then two, I don't know, Tupac. And they go, that's a great name, Dad. <laughs> and I was, that's literally how it happened. I, you know, I was just frustrated. Two, two, Tupac. That's the word that came in my mind. <laughs> All right, so that's that's the dog story. Now we're going to get into the meat of the interview about Kevin's book. But but come on, I had to leave the dog story in. There, there was no way I was not going to leave the dog story in. The thought of running barefoot, especially up here in North Stanford, has never occurred to me. Uh, I mean, this time of year, you got salt all over the roads. Right. You know, the fall, we've got leaves and acorns. And um, I think I take my life in my hands when I run on these streets to begin with because people drive like crazy up here. So the thought of running barefoot is, um, let's just say it's, it's unique to me. Uh, wh- what, what prompted you to start doing it? And then, um, yeah, does it, well, it start sure. there. What prompted yeah, you to start doing it? Yeah, so it wasn't in my mind either initially. Okay, and so I was having a little back pain, hip pain, like you, run since high school. Run all the time. I love running. It satisfies a lot of physical, spiritual, you know, needs, it seems like. And my wife saw an article in the paper about a guy who wrote a book about barefoot running. And she said, let's go see him. It was at one of the schools in Fairfield. Fairfield High School or one of the, the Fairfield Ludlow. And we go up there and we see him. And he speaks and it's a whole auditorium full of people. And he's talking about all these guys barefoot running the Tarawahara in Mexico. This is like a native uh, tribe. These guys run all the time. And they're running deep into their 80s, long distances. No joint problems. And I was like, wow, you know, I want to run. I want to do that. And so he said it was because of the running shoes and there's all sorts of adjustments that are being made. Nothing malicious. You know, they're trying to figure out what's best for us humans, okay, running. And so I said, well, I'm going to give this a shot. Bought his book, read the book. Next day, I went out there and said, let me give this a try. I went to a track. I wasn't a lunatic first. Went to a track, <laughs> ran around the track a couple of times. I said, okay, this feels okay. And then, you know, and then I put my shoes on and went for a run outside, you know, on the street. And then I got to a certain point. I said, you know, I'm going to go out into the street. And I started going in the street running. And I live in a suburban, rural-ish area. And so the streets aren't packed. You know, there's traffic, but it's not packed. And I just started, I just started doing it. And I noticed what was bizarre is backache, hip pain, gone. Gone. So I said, you know, I'll put up with the embarrassment of looking like this lunatic running bit because it does look funny. It looks funny. And I know my neighbors see me and they, you know, <laughs> they're looking and they're commenting. Um, there's, you know, I see the little look, that smirk on their face like, wow, this guy is crazy. <laughs> well, that, I mean, that's a big point that you make throughout the book is the connections you make with other people because of, you know, because of, because of doing this. But before we get there, okay, I want to talk about you as a runner before you as a barefoot runner. So, okay. 
you, you just mentioned you started running in high school. Right. What prompted you to start running in high school? So I love baseball. Big baseball guy. Played baseball as a kid and grew up in New York City. So there's all these, um, you know, sandlot leagues and stuff like that. And so when I went to high school, I went to a really a, a very good Catholic high school. I grew up in Roman Catholic. I, I like to say Irish Italian school. Um, my family was probably the, one of the only African American families in the school. But went to this high school, wanted to play baseball. And when I saw the baseball players, these guys were huge because this is a really prominent baseball school. And I went to high school. I was about 93 pounds and under five feet. And I really felt intimidated. And I was like, I can't play with these guys. And so I wanted to do something. So that the first thing was join a cross-country team. Everybody could run cross-country. And I started running. And all of a sudden, I was like, wow, I like this. And that was the start of me running. Later on, I did play baseball and all that sort of stuff as I grew. I, I mean, that summer, I probably grew seven inches. Wow. You know? So it was, you know, all of a sudden I was growing. But I remember running in um, outdoor track season. So that was probably sometime around April. And I weighed in. I was a sub-midget. That was the classification they gave it. Today, they would never do that. Sub-midget, under 100 pounds. You know, it's like, wow, I felt really good about myself. <laughs> but that was the start and loved it from there. I just love, and I'd go out and forever, even when I played baseball, I would go out for a run in the morning. It was just what I loved to do. Yeah, I am I, similar to you. I, I played baseball and then I uh, did freshman baseball. I, by far, probably one of the worst kids on the team. I mean, I just, <laughs> I, I used to, I used to do well in practice, and then I would just choke when it came yeah, to gameplay. Yeah, yeah. I, I used to be able to hit very well in practice, and then I'd strike out or get hit by the ball. That was my only, <laughs> my only chance of getting on base was if I got hit by the ball, which happened often. And if uh, if the pitcher was just tired and I'd get walked. And that's the only way I'd, my on-base percentage wasn't bad under those two conditions. Wow. But, wow. Uh, yeah, I, I, I used to whiff all the time. And, cool. you know, I'd be out in, in left field uh, just, you know. And my mind wanders. Like, I'm one of these guys who I, I just can't, like, concentrate. And when you're playing in the outfield like I was um, – you know, there's a lot of free time out there if there's not much going on at the, you know. So I, I would wander, and then all of a sudden, like, somebody would hit the ball, and then, like, I'd hear somebody screaming, like, my dad in the stands, wake up out there. And then I'd be like, ah. So I, I ended after freshman year. I oh, fell in love with theater, but then I also started doing cross country. Okay. Um, and then I fell in love with running, just like, like you're saying. And there was just something about... Being outside, mm. being in nature, I don't mm. do the treadmill. I can't. Yeah. My wife, right now, she's going to be on the treadmill. In fact, we have one in the basement. Okay. I can't do it. Yeah. I can't do it. Um, it's hamsters. I, I, I go on the treadmill occasionally. And, you know, this time of year, if I can't get outside and it's icy and, and cold, uh, I go on the treadmill. But I feel like a hamster. They're all lined up. Hamsters, you know, it's crazy. It would be great if we could find a way to like hook up uh, treadmills to some other kind of alternative power source, so that when you're on that treadmill or hamster wheel, you're actually generating <laughs> the lights in the kitchen or something like that. That, that would, would be, be nice. kind of interesting. That would be pretty cool. Um, yeah. All right. So you started running in high school. Uh, what high school was it? What what Catholic uh, high school? Archbishop did you go? Malloy High School okay. in, in Queens. All right. In, in, 
New York. In Queens, New York. All right. So you're there. uh, You're doing the cross-country thing, outdoor track and all that. Uh, But you don't stop running after the season's over. You kind of – you stick with it. Yeah. Yeah. What is it you think you get out of of running? Oh, definitely. So then it probably wasn't what I get now. Today it's really peace of mind. I get to all that stuff that's scrambled up in our head, seems to get straightened out. And for me, it is, it's a bit of a spiritual experience today. Not even a bit, a lot of that. You know, I go out there and I absolutely feel connected to, you, people would call it differently, I feel connected to God. I feel a connection. And, and I also feel a connection to, as you know, trees and everything else. But I really feel connected. I feel, and, and, when, I, and when I come in from my run, I feel empowered. I feel like anything that comes on today, I can handle. Nothing can can overwhelm me. And that's peace of mind. That's also, it's just something goes on inside our brain mentally, you know. And I know we are endorphins and all that sort of stuff. But that's, it's a real peace of mind and a strength, you know, a mental strength that you get. So you've, you've um, it, to me, it's almost like, a therapy of sorts. Mm-hmm. I used to run um, listening to music. I don't mm-hmm. do that anymore. Okay. I mean, I remember like back in the day, I'd have my Sony Walkman cassette player. <laughs> right, 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 right. I'd make mixtapes. <laughs> like, you know, here's the thing. Like, my son, who's somewhere in this house right now, will never know the art of making a mixtape. They drag and drop, you know, right, with the right, iTunes and all right. that. We used to have to get like blank cassettes and then line up all the other cassettes. And then time it just appropriately, and it was it took hours to make a mixtape. Right. So I'd make these mixtapes for running, um, and uh, but now these days it's like I, I don't want to I don't want to be listening to music because a it's dangerous because the cars up here drive like crazy, right? But b it's like that is my time to like be with myself and my thoughts. If I'm writing, I write books, and when I'm writing books, and I feel a little bit of. Um, a writer's block. If I just can't get through a scene, or if I don't like have in my head how a scene is going to be resolved, I'll go out and I'll run, and I'll just let my subconscious chew on it, mm. and then invariably the answer will come to me, and mm. then I'll I'll race back, and I'll uh, no pun intended, but race back, right, go right. go up to my office, and I'll just kind of write write it out before I forget it. That's fantastic. Um, but that's that's kind of what I do, um, and the music is is kind of a thing of the past now. Wow, that's interesting. I, I mean, I. I'm curious about that process that you go through in writing. So do you have a certain discipline? I, I, before I start writing a book, I'll have an outline. And this is actually something uh, a friend of mine, Lou Aronica, who uh, actually lives around the corner here, but he's a New York Times bestselling author. I'll okay. plug him a little bit. Okay. <laughs> um, but he says the best thing you can do is prepare an outline and just kind of know where the story is going to go. You don't have to have every scene mm-hmm. kind of concocted, mm-hmm. but just kind of know where it's going to wind up. Okay. And don't view it as handcuffs. You know, really think of it as, you know, you can always change things as you go through, and invariably I always do. Okay. You know, wh- how I think something is going to end or progress might be completely different, or a new character might come in that I wasn't thinking of. Um, but it really is a helpful tool to to 
to, to think about where you want this to go before mm. you start writing, because then you just might start kind of writing in circles. Right, right. Uh, which my first book, that's exactly what I did. It took me three years to write it. <laughs> it's the smallest book I've ever written. Everything yeah. else has been Interesting. a lot shorter. But that's the discipline that I start with, and then I try and do just a little bit of writing every day, which doesn't always happen. But. Do you pick a time of day? Do you do morning as your usual? or Morning and evening. Okay. Um, so okay. uh, I have to do it before I start like work work right you know, before i start doing something for a client or something if i don't if i don't get it done in the morning just like exercise if i don't get that done in the right. morning Me it's too. probably not going to happen i'm the same it's definitely not going to happen in the evening right um maybe i'll go out at lunch and and mm-hmm. you know hit the mm-hmm. gym or something if i'm doing strength training um and then in the evening i'll write too when everything is quieted down in the house okay. when the kids are done when the dishes are done and i have my time instead of hitting the tv which right. i still do I'll I'll try and bang out a little bit, or if, you know I'm on an airplane. I do a lot of writing. Yep, we you know guys like that spend a lot of time on, on airplanes, airplane and airports. So just going back to your book for a second, okay. uh, or for not more than a second, um, you uh, you go through this process of learning or, or experimenting with barefoot running. Right. At, at what point in time do you think to yourself? I should really capture these experiences, uh, my experiences with barefoot running, but also these these kind of insights that mm-hmm. you glean while mm-hmm. barefoot running mm-hmm. into a book. And how does the book become a reality? Yeah, so it's interesting because you, you go out, I go out every day and I'm running and I'm finding, so all these things started happening simultaneously. So the connections, my neighbors thought, I've lived in the same house now 23 years and run that path all the time, the, or that route. There's a couple of routes. I have a four-mile ride, a five-mile route, a six, a seven, an eight. I mean, I have this is, I, I mean, I'm pretty fanatical about this. I've run a couple of marathons, so I need to know the distances if I'm training. And so then I told, so what happens is I go out there, and all of a sudden I started noticing these connections to my neighbors. That was the first thing. Neighbors started talking to me. Stop me. See me for years. Never stop to talk. So now we're talking. And but also when I'm running, I notice that and maybe I'm processing things. <laughs> things happen in in my brain. And I'm noticing these insights about life, about my relationship to God. All of those things started happening simultaneously. And so then I don't know when I started, but I would come back and say, you know, let me write that down. And because historically I wouldn't do anything. I, what I love about running is shorts and a T-shirt and in my case, no shoes. Bam. Can't get simpler than that. Um, I guess it could get simpler, but my neighbors wouldn't like that. I don't think. <laughs> um, but can't get simpler than that. And then so I would come back in. I'd write it down. And then I just noticed that I started – I had a number of these. So, of course, I put it in my laptop. And it occurred to me that I said, maybe I should just keep track of this. And then the other thing that started happening, people kept asking me, tell me about why you're doing this. Tell me, could I do this? How, what process would I take? And I said, maybe I should just kind of start putting together an outline about this is what you would need to do. The thing that I think is most important, at least in my mind, is doing this gradually. It's not for everybody. Everybody's body type, I don't think, is designed to run barefoot. And so, you know, to let, make sure people understand, go gradually into this a little bit at a time, see how you feel, and see how you feel when people are looking at you like you're a nut job. 
You really, you know, because it's every day. Yeah. yeah. Yesterday, yesterday, went out, beautiful day. I said, I'm going to give it a shot. Meet this guy, pulls over. And I, again, I don't know if he's just pulling over because he's afraid of getting too far out in the, you know, in the middle of the road. He's really close to me and he stops. Where you been? I haven't seen you in months. What's going on? And I, I don't know, of course. And, but he, and the, how's it end? He says, listen, what's your name? Where do you live? He says, I'm going to give you a call. I want to have you over, you and your wife over for dinner with my wife. Wow. Wow. You know, that just blows you, that blows me away. You know, it's, it's funny, not funny, maybe funny. When I'm running, um, I, I hate it when people interrupt me. <laughs> you know, because I'll be in a groove, and I'm one of these guys, if I have to stop starting up again. I want to go home. I, it's like this turnaround, and, and it's over. But it's, it happens all the time. Like, people ask me for directions, right? And I'll be like, it's down, and I'll try not to stop running, because if I stop again, right, it's right, like right. almost game over. So how do you get to the Merritt Parkway? And I tell them, and they're like, can you just stop and tell me? And I'm like, yeah. oh. Yeah. But th- that happens. Mm-hmm. But but you almost turn that on its head a little bit. And, and instead of, I don't know if you're upset or not when this happens. But you really you use it to open the door to a new connection right. or to, right. to feeling yeah. connected with fellow human beings. Yeah, yeah. Which, not not upset anymore. It, it, there are, and there are times when I it's like, oh please don't stop me. But it, it's okay, you know, it's okay. And now you're right. I have to turn it on head on its head. I enjoy it. We're connecting. This is fine. And um, yesterday was, was particularly unusual. Three people stopped me. Three sets of people stopped me. A guy with a dog, a couple with their child, and two dogs, and the guy in the car. And it was just, wow, okay. And, you know, it's kind of springish. You know, we just came out of the um, <laughs> Arctic, you know, freeze there. <laughs> um, so everyone was feeling a little bit better. I, I love it in in that you know, at the end of the day, if you can impact someone's life for a moment, for a moment, maybe connect with them, maybe make them smile, just maybe make them think differently about another human being. I, and that's, you know, that's it. You know, because all this other stuff, I mean, we, we, you and I would love to change the world, okay? But, you know, if we can change one moment for one person, I think that's kind of, that's pretty special. Well, that's the one thing that I, that surprised me when I read the book. Um, you know, I, I read it and I and I probably glanced at the the synopsis on on the the back cover mm-hmm. um, because I'm, I don't you know when, when I'm making the decision to buy something I don't read something all that closely and I knew that I was going to buy the book anyway so right. I didn't really digest it too much. When I start reading it and you almost you open up I believe with. Uh, uh, God telling Moses to remove his sandals because right. the ground that he stands on is holy. And I said, well, this book is actually going to be a lot different than than I thought it was going to be because mm-hmm. you do have a lot of spiritual reflections right. in the book. And I just wanted to to, to kind of talk about some of them. Sure. One of them um, was about fear. And um, you, you mentioned, um, you know, fear has a huge appetite. Um now I'm trying to specifically remember the, the context in the book. Did it have something to do with, um, you know, fear leading to hatred or, or kind of talking about um, – I think you were talking about like the news media and how the news media kind of right, uh, right. You know, capitalizes on fear and then, and then people on social media kind of playing into that a little bit. But, right. but I thought that was interesting. Fear has a huge appetite. Yeah. Fear, you know, it's, and it, it, it's, 
it's what happens, you know, the media is a, is a big part of this fear in, in my mind, you know, and so, and, and I think it's mentioned in a, a good friend of mine from my church, actually, he's always sending emails about these horrors that are going on in the world, you know, and, and so, and I told him at a certain point, this isn't helpful. You're just making people afraid. And so when we look at scripture, we hear throughout scripture, be not afraid. Be not afraid. And maybe there's a reason for that because it's not the things out there that are frightening. It's the thing that's inside that we create. And so that, that's what struck me. Again, that's, those are the types of insights that struck me. So a lot of this is, you know, I come from uh, a pretty spiritual background. You know, I, I'm, I, I've actually run a Bible study at my church, which is just in some ways, I think, bizarre. Um, because I, I kind of have a, a little bit of a, diff, a radical view on, on, you know, how the, the church should be. But, um, but that's, I think that's nice. It's open, you know. And, and, but anyway, that idea of how fear, it's, fear is, is, is powerful. You know, that, that drives a lot of things in this world. And I, another thing that, that kind of struck me just um, reading the book was this notion of, um, you know, being being out of nature and having kind of uh, God talk to you while you're mm-hmm. kind of out mm-hmm. of nature. And you mentioned that, you know, God doesn't live, you know, in a tabernacle, in a church, in a mosque, in a, in a, in a temple, all, all around us. He or yeah. she is kind of all around us. And it, it kind of got me thinking, um, there's, there's a tenet of Ignatian spirituality mm-hmm. that says to find God in all things. Right. And, you know, in my mind, it's, you know, we've, we've kind of put, God in a box, yeah. and that's not the natural. I don't think that's no. that's necessarily right, and I don't know if that ties into how to. You know, you mentioned kind of having kind of radically different thoughts about right, very about much it, so, but. very much so. I, you know, again, this is there's a little hypocrisy in me in that I have raised my children, church every Sunday, never miss. We go on vacation, they're like, Dad, can we miss something? Nope, I'm going to find a church somewhere. I don't care where we are on the planet, <laughs> you know? And so there's that one level, but there is this, I have a understanding that God is everywhere, in everything. And so, and it's, it's opening up. And this is what the book, I want people to get from the book, is simply open yourself up to the possibility that God is in everything. And in everywhere, and in all those people you encounter, and so that's what that's what's happened with me. Running has allowed me to go out, taking off my shoes. Whatever's going on at the bottom of my feet <laughs> is connecting me with, I think, this source of information that God gives us. You know, the Spirit, and I think that's really the driver. You know, that's the driver for the book for me. It's I just want people. I don't people don't have to believe. You know, they can think running barefoot's insane. It's just maybe it's cracked a door open for somebody and say, wow, maybe I should think about my spiritual life a little bit differently in a bigger sense. Right. I mean, if you think about it, for for many of us, church is one day a week. Mm-hmm. And for for a, a big bigger group of people, yeah. it might be two days a year. Right, know, right, if, right. If but if you're doing something every day, if you're willing to open yourself up to this notion of kind of uh, having it be wider than just the building you're walking into, mm-hmm. and maybe even a one-on-one, you know, uh, interaction um, with a stranger, you can 
again, I go back to this idea of Ignatian spirituality, and I, I, I did some Jesuit stuff in my mm-hmm. life, but mm-hmm. it's, it's uh, this notion of being able to look at, at anything and finding a greater meaning or greater purpose. Yeah. And for many people, that could be you know seeing you running, right. <laughs> running barefoot. That's right. And for you, it could be the animals you see or the wind in your mm-hmm. face that you talk mm-hmm. about in the book or yeah. something that kind of comes in your path, yeah. Um, yeah. kind of being there for, for a reason. You know, it's interesting. The things that influence us are, are, you know, they come from different directions. So you talk about Ignatian spirituality. The, there's a book, Tattoos of the Heart. I mentioned it in the book. And that's a Jesuit priest who's opened up this amazing program in Los Angeles with these um, gang members. And, um, and he talks about, it's, it's remarkable, he talks about working with these gang members and what a gift that he's been given to work with these kids. And he, he, sees, he sees God in them. These guys who are gangbangers, some of them have murdered people and so forth. And it's just, it's, it flips everything upside down. He just really understands it, and that's it's remarkable that you mentioned that because it's. I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot in reading his books. He has a few books, and then I was, you know, focus groups in L.A. I said, "Hey, I'm going to drive to his place." And went there. Gang members tattooed. Everyone's tattooed, and this 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 sanctuary, this holy place that he's created for them in the middle of the hood, to to give them some hope. It's. That's 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 living it. That's fa- that's fa- fascinating that you tracked him down. Um, <laughs> you know, and then you know, yeah. gosh, that's uh, that's amazing. I once tracked down a woman who, <laughs> completely different topic. <laughs> so I was doing focus groups or interviews in a, um, a, a Phoenix, Arizona, and the topic was uh, I was talking to professional athletes and teenage athletes about protein powders. It was a okay. you know for okay. uh, yep. a nutrition company. Yep. And last interview, I was going to skip the interview. We already, you know, this was our overbook. Okay. And I'm like, yeah, we don't really need to do this last one, right? I mean, we don't need to do it. We can, the client will never know. I know that feeling. Um, we did it. <laughs> yep. And uh, it was fascinating that the, the mom's name was Gerald Abramson. And they had just moved out to uh, Phoenix from New York State. And this has nothing to do with spirituality or barefoot running. Oh, it's okay. Good, but, good. No, it's good. Um, I love a story. <laughs> we, we had uh, – so, and we, I was talking to, to her son because he was the guy we were interested in. Uh, his name was Zach. And uh, I could tell mom was helicoptering around. She, yeah. Was, yeah. she was like, who are these people in my house? <laughs> there was a guy on the couch with an oxygen tank on him. So I knew I had to disarm mom a little bit in order to, to bring anything out of the kid. So I said, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself. Just, you know, where sure. are you from? Blah, blah, blah. She's like, well, I'm from upstate New York. And I always try to find common ground. With people. I said, my aunt and uncle from upstate New York. <laughs> are you anywhere near the Little Falls area? Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. she's like, no, no, no. Um, and then I hear from the couch. The old man says, tell him. I said, tell me, what do I need to know? She's like, well, have you, uh, have you heard of Woodstock? And I said, no, I heard never. of Woodstock. I mean, a little before my time. Hello. But three chords in the truth. I love rock and roll. So uh, she says, yes, we own uh, Maxie Asker's homestead. Wow. So they bought the house. Wow. Now, they, don't have, they didn't own the farm. Right, that, right, that right. The, 
but they own the house. And so then I said, okay, I'm going to pause on the protein powder conversation. <laughs> Let me have five minutes about and what's up with it. She couldn't really talk to me about it. There was too much going on. So, and I needed to get back to the kid. Right. Seven years later, I'm back in Phoenix doing work for Bank of America or someone. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to track down Gerald Abramson just to have that Woodstock conversation sure. with her that I couldn't have. So sure enough, I track her down. I, I, she agrees to come to the, the, the facility where I'm at. And uh, we, we do an interview like this just to talk about That's her and her experiences awesome. at Woodstock and all that. And it was... Uh, Oh, I love that. That was my. That's my. That's awesome. Reaching out. Yeah, to the, uh, yeah. That's you know, to and you reached across time, <laughs> seven years. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, I'm like, I don't know, face. I don't know if you remember me, but she's like, yeah, I actually remember you because I thought it was weird that you were in my house talking to my son about protein powder. Yeah. Wow. Um. So, uh, but but uh, it is fascinating to find you know those people who are making such a difference in the world, and that that's kind of you, you, and the fact that you get these insights when you're running to me is. Um, is fascinating. And, and I ask for them. And you ask for them. So you, you kind of put it out there. I put it out there because I go out, the first thing I do, I say it to myself every time, you know, that's, that go back to that phrase, you know, remove your sandals because the ground you walk on is holy. And that, that to me, it, it's like, it's the strength. I'm out there. And, I, and that's also, to me, it's asking, here, I'm, I'm open. I'm ready. I'm listening. So uh, and a couple of other observations um, that... Uh, that I made while walking okay, over in your sure, book. Great. Uh, what one of your passages in a world filled with excess, the only thing we do not have in excess is love, and that kind of brought me to uh, the letter to the Corinthians I had to read mm, <laughs> yesterday, yesterday in in, sure. um, in mass. But uh, but tell me, I mean, this this we don't have this excess of love now. I, is it we think we know what love is and and we really don't, or as Hathaway said in their famous '90s song, "What is love? Mm, Baby, don't yeah, hurt me." Yeah, but no. Yeah. Um, what, what, so how did that come to you? How did, how did that sort of insight kind of come, come into your into your mind as you're as you're running? You know, that's probably connected to how you know to things that are going on in the media. You know, you hear things, and it's always a focus on something negative that's going on out there. Um, and I don't know how that came to me. You know, but that is, but that it's definitely. You know, that's definitely something I, I heard, you know, and and it resonates. I mean, that's the other thing. So the things that I, these insights that I would get, it would have to resonate. You know, and that's one that resonated with me. But to me, the love is, it's not a very, it's, it's much more complex and it's much more open. You know, the idea of trying to separate like from like a lot from love. You know, it's not that complex. You know, love is much broader. You know, you know, you and I are married, so we love our wives, we love our children. But I also love, you know, I, I um, I'm a busy person, so I, I, I teach a karate class in in um, Darien, and I love all those kids, like they're mine. Okay, I can love them. I love their parents. You know, and so this we can love people. It doesn't have to be narrow. Love can be wider. And that's, you know, we don't have, maybe there it's out there, but we don't recognize it. Because once we commit and say, I do love them, then we're going to treat them differently. And we're going to be there for them. And, you know, you might give to a charity. We, we have 
My wife and I have um, sponsored some kids in, in Africa. We love those kids. We've met them. We love them. And we treat them like our own children. Sometimes we have to tell them that's not the path you need to go on right now. And other times it's, it's, it's different. But, yeah. you know, love is broader than, than this narrow world in which they go, well, you only can love one or two people. No, you, you can love a lot of people. Yeah. You know, just stretch the heart. Right. Not necessarily romantically. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Like we, we, I think we define love as like romantic love. That's you it. Know, yep. That which we, you know, hopefully reserve just for one other person. That'd be good. Who I, happens think. To, I think. <laughs> it's, you know, there's a reason why those <laughs> rules are in place. But yeah, it's interesting. The other thing you say is uh, compassion knows no strangers. Um, and I think we, we do have a shortage of, of compassion. I mean, I, I have friends who, um, they're, they're not always nice people. Mm-hmm. They're, they don't always do the right thing. You know, mm-hmm. I've got one friend in particular who's made just so many mistakes in his life and is paying for it now. Mm-hmm. And is, you know, he, he always, any woman I, or girl I ever dated in high school, he always rubbed the wrong way. And people would always say, you know, why do you keep this guy in your life? Why do you still hang out with him? Right. And I'm like, well, he's, you know, we, we have a friendship. Mm-hmm. And even though he does things that I choose not to do, right. I'm not going to judge him for those things. I can counsel him. I can give him. I can. I can show him my example. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to just totally write somebody off because they've rubbed me the wrong way one time or a few times, or because you know I think we we need to be bigger than yeah. that. Yeah. You know, we need to show compassion to people who may not be deserving of it right. or we don't think are deserving of it i should say right. everyone's deserving of compassion well you know that that makes me first of all our work has taught me okay so you and i both do focus groups we sit with people a lot and i'll sit in there and you know i the best part of the focus group for me is tell me a little bit about yourself what do you do for a living what do you do for fun what's your life like you know and when they go around and they tell a story and you realize, wow, people live really complicated lives sometimes. They're raising a child who has um, some sort of terminal illness. They're taking care of their mother. A woman, she's, she's, um, she raised her child in, as a single parent. Then she went back to school. Then she went and got her master's degree. And now she's taking care of her elderly mother. And you sit there and you go, oh, my goodness. And that compassion grows in us. And it's, so it's just on and on and on. You know, it's, um, I'm referring to Father, Boyle, uh, Father uh, Doyle again. He had a great line in his most recent book. And he's a two priests sitting there in L.A. It's Sunday. He's I'm reading the L.A. Times. He says, we don't want to answer. I don't answer the door on Sunday because it's just nothing but trouble. <laughs> he goes through this whole thing. And he says, doorbell rings. And he says, I'm ignoring it. And a friend and the other priest is, they're ignoring it. They're hammering at the door. And this guy says, and says, finally he says, the other priest gets up, answers the door, comes back, sits down. And so, um, Father Boyle, Boyle? Is his name Boyle? I think it's Boyle. He says to him, he says, tell me, so who was that? And he says, Jesus in his most unrecognizable form. I love that line. Love that line. You know, that's Jesus in his most unrecognizable form. So for us Christians, that's Jesus. For everybody else in the world, it is just, it's part of the humanity. We're not all perfect, you know, and this is the creator inside of someone else who's having a bad time of it. 
So when you're when you're going through, this strikes me as interesting. Uh, just to dial back to focus group introductions <laughs> right, for right, a minute, right, right. we'll get a little less heavy for a few minutes. <laughs> you go around the table and you talk to that single mom who's working three jobs. Yep. And kid uh, has some struggles. I mean, yeah. we, we meet these people all the time. All the time. And then, do you ever realize to yourself, now I got to spend ninety minutes talking about a credit card offer to her? Oh, oh, ridiculous! <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. and they want to change this letter on this can. They want to know should they tilt it to the left ninety degrees or forty five degrees? And you go, oh my goodness! Yeah. I all the time, all the time, I mean, it happens. The, the stuff that we have to ask people about in the context of really the, the context that they make decisions in is so completely different Man. than what we think all the <laughs> time know? all the time yeah and because i and i sometimes i'll say i'll say listen you know this has really been great conversation now we're going to jump into something that doesn't really <laughs> seem all that important but but we're going to give it our best effort <laughs> right we uh we have this new product that's intended to get you into debt we realize you can't afford anything so we're going to help you and uh, by the way there'll be a 22 percent interest rate on this <laughs> You can't buy it. It's like, oh my god! Sometimes I wonder, I'm like, what am what am I doing with my life? I really do. I do it. I do it all the time. All I'm the like, time. but then I think to myself, if I didn't do this for a living, what would I do? Like, right. I couldn't. I couldn't sit right. and, and do finance all day. Right. You know, right. even though you know we, we we might be in a more comfortable position if I did, but I just I I and I can't sit yeah. in one spot. No, no. Um, I get it. Just the funniest side. In the same place. Just the funniest side. So there's there's a there's a, a dad on my daughter's hockey team, uh, who um, he former New York City policeman. Okay. Uh, he's seen the worst, probably the best and the worst of oh, humanity, sure. right? Oh, sure. so the, yep. the, the things that he's had to deal with. He was a, a cop in the Bronx, mm. um, and he we get into this discussion all the time because he knows, you know, that that I do the church thing, and he was raised Roman Catholic, okay. all that is, yep. um, you know, very Italian guy. Um, and he says that you know, Mike. He's like, why? Why do you do this, Mike? I don't. He talks like this. Like, I don't understand why you why you waste your time with this stuff. You know, there's no God. You know, why does why do good things happen? Why do bad things happen to so many good people? He's like, I've seen the worst. Mm. You you gave me a um, an insight into the, a potential answer to that question because I don't have a really great answer for right. him, and I always try to say free will, and yep, he'll yep, argue yep. any he, he'll argue it. Sure. You say the cause of human suffering. Uh, is the expectation that others will be perfect in a way that we can never be? Right. I wanted you to talk a little bit more right. about that because to me that there, there, I think there's there's an answer in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm so fascinated to by me that. that you know it's um, it's driving in your car. Okay, so today driving in a car, I'm late. Okay, traffic's built up. I am always upset when people are texting in their car, okay? Because <laughs> I'm like, I'm never going to text in a car. But I'm late for, the, for this meeting, and I said, well, I got it. So how did I get away? I didn't text you. I emailed you. <laughs> <laughs> but that is, that's exactly right. You know, that's, that's the thing. So this expectation that others are going to be perfect the way I'm not, you know, and that's, that's the thing that, that moves me. Is, you know, this expectation, this, we judge people, we prejudge them, but that's, you know, we're not perfect, you know, and I think there is something in there that allows, for me, it's freeing to know that, you know, it's okay. It's okay. So also when we're walking down the street now, we have a different perspective of someone who is in some sort of negative space, 
You know, we, we can allow that. We, we don't want them in that space, but we can understand they're somewhere. Something happened to them. Uh, something turned in their, in their life. And this isn't what they want, but this is where they are. You know, it's, it's, acceptance comes out of that, I think. Yeah. You know, but not, not an acceptance that says, oh, I'm not going to do anything to kind of change someone's plight. But it's an acceptance to understand it's there, and then you can move on to do something. Yeah. Um, one, one of the other things that you talk about is this idea of letting go, kind of letting go. Um, and I can't remember if, if it was about kind of living more in the present and enjoying that present moment more, or or if it was a bigger context. But you say, you know, let go your kind of hopes for the future. Let go your, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Expectations you have for your children, for your marriage. There was this idea of letting go. And Mm -hmm. to me, as I was reading those pages, um, the the song by the Beatles, Let It Be, kind of Mm -hmm. came into my head. Mm -hmm. And um, I just wanted you to talk a little bit more about that, that kind of, this idea of letting go and kind of shedding, um, kind of shedding all that worry, that fear, those expectations, et cetera. I mean, that clogs my head. I mean, I've got you, all those things you mentioned, you know, your kids, kids at their education, um, wanting things for them. You know, it's, it's like, uh, yeah, it's like coveting. <laughs> I want everything for my kids. I want everything for the family. I want the world to be a certain way. And letting go is just getting it off your back. I don't know if it's, um, if it's free will or it is closer to let it be. It really is close to let it be. I never thought about that. Um, but the idea of letting go, get all that stuff off your plate, and then you're free. You're really free. To Then you can make decisions that are, are, you know, aren't driven by some ulterior motive that you have. You know, it's, uh, you know, I love, I love the idea of letting go. And it's hard. Every day I'm working on letting it go. <laughs> <laughs> so last uh, last topic I wanted to okay. talk about, um, and this one actually hits home because today today's February fourth. It is the fourth anniversary of my mother in law's passing. Mm. Um, and as I was reading uh, what you're what what I'm about to kind of paraphrase for you in a second, mm. you know, it kind of hit me like, wow, this is because um, when when she was in the process of dying, like you, you realize that. Um, Death isn't just like a before and after type thing. There, there, there's a process that that right. happens, and this is what I learned um, by reading a lot of hospice um, mm-hmm. materials and and also kind of what I've witnessed mm-hmm. um, happen in this house and in, in, in a hospital room. But but before I get too deep into that, you you have an observation where you say we spend too much time attempting to separate ourselves to separate kind of living and dying, um, and I just wanted you to talk about that a little bit more. It's funny you mentioned your, your mother-in-law, right? And so during the when I was putting this book together, one of the things that happened is my dad died. And the experience of him dying was just surreal. I you know, you don't know until you're in it. Dad had a mini mini stroke, right? In the, in his brain, no one could tell. The hospital couldn't figure it out. My sister's a doctor, and so she was relentless in saying, "Kevin, dad's voice is something's off in it. It's cracking. Something's weird. And so they eventually did some sort of scan. They found this little spot where a stroke happened. It happened to be in the area where he, um, the ability to swallow. Mm-hmm. Dad was 93. He said, no feeding tube, no plug. I'm not doing that. We're like, well, dad, you can't swallow. We, he's like, you know, we had to f- teach him how to swallow again. Not able to do it. It didn't happen. 
But to watch him slowly move down this path, getting thinner and thinner, um, mind was okay. Dad's memory was kind of shot, but in the moment, he was fine. And so watching him go, you realize it wasn't that eventually he died, but he kind of whittled away. You know, and so this process that went down the line and this process of interacting with my siblings as dad is going and and other people, their interaction, how my dad was um, a deacon in the Catholic Church and seeing the priest coming all the time to the house and this process that he drifted down this this path. Um, and he was told he was ready. He's like, mom passed away a few years ago. I've kind of had it. We said, Dad, you got to get this feeding tube. They'll give you a plug. I don't want that. I'm not doing that. I was like, Dad, you know, if you don't eat, if you don't get, you know, nutrition, you're not going to. And it's like that helped in some ways. And so when I'm out there running barefoot, you're you're experiencing life and and death simultaneously. Trees are rotting, you know. Carcasses are on the road, you know. There are a lot of carcasses on the nasty road. Business. Nasty business, but it's all it's all the same fabric. That's that's what you know. All of that kind of converges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To to me, it's because uh, you know just going through that process. I you know there's a lot of death in my family as as a child. Mm. Um, then I was an altar boy, and uh, I I used to have this scam going. So our my middle school <laughs> was in a. Uh, was above a church. Uh, it was okay. St. Gabriel Church here in Stanford. Okay. And uh, I, so, and that was our parish too. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there were two things that I really enjoyed in life. One was making money because mm-hmm. I always liked to have a little spending money. Right. The other was getting out of school for any reason because oh, yeah. I was not oh, – yeah. I mean, I was a good student. I got good <laughs> grades, but I was bored to death. I really was. I was I, – and I, I don't know if I was just bored by the material or what, but right. any reason to get out of class. Now, if you combine the two, make a couple bucks, get out of school, that's the holy grail for me. Funerals. Funerals. <laughs> so so I go to school. And the church is in the, the bottom of the school. That's our parish. I would get the bullet and my mother would be like, you really are interested in reading the bulletin every week. I'm like, I'm looking to see who died. So I can go up to Father Bob and say, hey, if you need an altar boy for 10 o'clock on Thursday, I'm there. I'm your man. And That's it, So I used to go to a lot of funerals, which sounds crazy. Yeah. You see, but you do see like a beauty in, mm-hmm. in the funeral, right? Um, but then just you know, talking about um, – and it's, it's very personal, but my mother-in-law's passing. Um, God, four years ago today. It's hard to believe. Wow. Um, just that that the notion that um, death is just a discrete event uh, it, it was really squashed for me. Like just yeah. watching, yeah. Uh, watching her slip away, and then you know what's what's amazing. I don't know if you've ever interacted with hospice at all, but mm-hmm. um, these hospice nurses. I actually want to interview some of them. That'd be just very to cool. ta- it'd be so be awesome. fascinating to me. Yeah. But just they they put together these materials. You know, kind of what to look for. When somebody is, when a loved one is about to pass. Mm-hmm. And um, we had an experience right here in this house. My mother in law was walking around, and, and I, I hope my wife isn't upset that I'm sharing this story, but she was walking around one night talking to herself. We thought she was talking to herself. Right. And she says, No, I'm talking to Ernie. Ernie was her brother who had passed away in October, wow. and this was in January. Wow. So just a few months earlier. And then another time we came home, um, and my mother-in-law was in her closet, 
like packing for a trip. She's like, I need to get my suitcase. I need to pack for a trip. We're like, we're not, we're not going anywhere. She's like, no, we're, we're, I'm going on a trip. I need to pack. And so it was just this really odd interaction. And we thought, okay, well, you know, the cancer had been progressing mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it's a little bit of dementia, but the woman sure. was sharp as a tack. I mean, at 89, yeah, she was working up until 89. Wow. <laughs> um, so then we're, okay, so cut two. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We're in the hospice room and, you know, we're all, it's like a waiting game. I mean, right. we're just kind of waiting Absolutely. for either a miracle or the mm-hmm. eventual to happen. And so I, I read brochures, you know, mm-hmm. and there, there's, there's like what to expect when your loved one is dying. One is if you find them talking to somebody that they claim to be talking to, I'm going to choke up, a relative, that could be wow. a real thing, right? Amazing. And then there were the other thing was if if they claim to be going on a trip. Wow. This was mind blowing. It's like the soul saying, We're ready, mm. but the body is still fighting it. So it was just wow. mind blowing to me. But I'm getting goosebumps. I know it's it's, I'm getting goosebumps. it's very goosebumpy. Wow. And, and uh, I'll have to introduce this by saying this is a very special episode of Uncorking a Story. Um mm. But uh, but yeah, to me, so that that this notion that life and death are separate, yeah, kind of comes into question. Yeah. Wow. Anyway, so just to bring it just to bring it well, back up okay. here, just to bring okay. it back up here. Now you uh, and I, and and uh, and I'll have to do this in an intro just to let people know kind of how we know each other. Okay. But we both ask questions of other people for right. a living, right? right. That, that's kind of what we do. And you, um, you have another the final observation I'll talk about here. Uh, it is through questioning that we grow, and through challenging that we see who we are and who we can be. Um, but I love the fact that you focused on it is through questioning because that it is that's kind of at the heart of what we do for a living. I mean, yeah. we do it for commercial reasons, mm-hmm. but we also, you know, I think within us, we also kind of do it for spiritual reasons as well. Yeah. That's yeah. It. yeah. We're, I think naturally we're curious. You, you and I, we, we become, we become more curious in our work because there's no question that we ask that gets answered either. It just leads to another question. Right. You know, we're always digging deeper. You know, I have a friend of mine, we always talk about peeling the onion. It's another layer, another layer. And we're always doing that. I love the questioning. And then the questioning, it, it's, it's revealing. We're revealing something about what we're questioning, but we're also, it's also revealing something inside of ourselves. Right. And I think we recognize that real well. You know, and that's what makes the work we do so hard. It's not that the work is hard. It's, it doesn't always answer the questions. And it always opens something else up inside of us, whether it's, why am I doing this? You know, or is there something else here that's going on? Or we met someone in a session and you go, oh, my gosh, I want to talk to them some more. That right. questioning really, it really opens a lot of doors, a lot of doors. So uh, is there is there going to be a part two to this book? Is there going to be a second, um, a follow-up uh, as, as you continue to, to run barefoot? Because I get the sense that you're not stopping anytime soon. No, I'm not stopping anytime soon. Uh-huh. There, I, there may be. You know, yesterday's encounter was really encouraging because a, a number of different people stopped me and, and kind of building community. And the idea of actually having dinner with someone who I met through this is, is pretty cool. One day I actually put up signs around my running route and I said, I'm inviting you over. It was a late fall for um, just come on over for its end of the season 
and come over for snacks with the barefoot runner. And because um, they, they all know me as the barefoot runner. <laughs> the kids are yelling, Mommy, Mommy, there goes the barefoot runner. <laughs> like, okay. Um, and I had a couple people come over, and I was thinking I might do that again um, because it's about building community. I like the idea of connecting. If we made these connections, let's really make them and let's build community around it. So I'm not going to stop. And I don't know what the next you know, level will be, but I'm, you know, I'm open to hearing what the Lord has for me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the book is connections, the raw musings of a barefoot runner. It's author is Kevin Knight. Now it's Kevin a Knight uh, for, if you're searching in the Amazon, you've got to type in Kevin a Knight, I believe. Yeah, I think so. Um, So the book is uh, again, connections, the raw musings of a barefoot runner. And Kevin Knight has been my guest and uh, it's been a great conversation. Thank you. Great to talk to you. Great to see you again. Uh, Likewise. So there you have it, my interview with Kevin Knight. What a what a just a fantastic guy. What a fantastic human being. Uh, I learned a lot by talking to Kevin. I think you'll learn a lot by reading his book. And to that end, feel free to go to Amazon.com or uh, where, where am I from? Boston, <laughs> Amazon.com or Barnes and Noble. Wherever you buy books, uh, you can find Kevin's book. It, it really is a great read, uh, and I think you'll you'll certainly get a lot out of it. Uh, and um, if you want to learn more about me and my books, please feel free. Visit michaelcarlinauthor.com. That's Carlin with an O and not an I. The I really trips people up sometimes. But uh, anyway, that's um, that. That's all I have for you. So until next time, uh, this is Mike Carlin on behalf of all of us hardworking people here at Uncorking a Story saying thank you for listening and until next time. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe.